I'm Rachel. This is Deconstructing Disney. To all who come to this happy podcast, welcome. Welcome. Hey, Rachel, happy new year. Happy new year. Cheers to 2021. Woo! I hope that actually happens. <laughs> you mean that we actually make it to 2021? <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, you never know in this 2020 year you anything really, could happen. <laughs> really don't. Uh, but yeah, it's not 2021 yet, listeners, for us in the past. Mm-hmm. We're time traveling. It's still November. So we just had an election. <laughs> if anything exciting has happened between... November 15th, and when you're listening to this, forgive us for not addressing it. I hope it's positive things, but once again, given 2020. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least one positive thing is happening, and that is that we are discussing the 1964 hybrid film, Mary Poppins. Yeah, we're going back into hybrids, which we've done Kind of, sort of, so far, but this is the the least animated film we will have talked about as of yet. So definitely stepping out of the stuff that we've been talking about a little bit in at least format. And like, I didn't know many of the names of the people who like wrote this because they're from the live action team. So it's nice to see the other side of things, but a little less context because you can't directly compare to past animation styles in quite the same way. We won't be comparing Mary Poppins to the other live action films, mm-hmm. especially thematically, so much as we'll be comparing it to, of course, the animated films, everything we've talked about on the podcast so far. Yeah. We're doing this because there are a couple hybrid films that we just want to talk about because they're important and we like them and all that stuff. So we're not sticking to our animated only initial guideline because that didn't sound as fun. <laughs> yeah. So, Aaron, give us a brief synopsis, if you can, of Mary Poppins. Oh, I can, Rachel. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> First, we see a lady like sitting in the clouds and it's all cute and pretty. And there's the London paintings and it's all nice. I liked the opening. It was very calming. <laughs> it sort of reminded me of Peter Pan a little bit, right? Big Ben yes. is featured very prominently. Mm-hmm. And we're back in London again. again. Disney loves London. <laughs> and that is particularly interesting because as we will learn, the books upon which this film was based do not specify London as a setting. Mm-hmm. Though they do say outside of a major city in Britain and everyone's like, okay, we know it's London. <laughs> um, it could be Oxford. There are other cities in England but it's probably true. Yes. So anyway, <laughs> Disney made the choice to embrace the London setting with the opening and a couple other moments throughout the film. Yeah, definitely. We see this woman sitting in the clouds. She's looking down on London in 1910. And we don't know who she is yet, but we will find out very soon. <laughs> then we meet Bert who's entertaining a crowd as a one-man band, and he takes us to number 17 Cherry Tree Lane, where there is, quote, heavy weather brewing. Jane and Michael Banks have run away for the fourth time this week, and their nanny attempts to quit her job multiple times when Mrs. Banks, a suffragette, comes home, but keeps being interrupted by Mrs. Banks singing Sister Suffragette. (laughs) 
when Katie Nana finally gets out that she is quitting, Mrs. Banks begs her to stay, especially when she thinks about how it will upset Mr. Banks. Mm -hmm. Katie Nana quits anyway, and Mr. Banks is upset about his missing children and the loss of the nanny, but the children return shortly, saying they were chasing their lost kite. Mr. Banks then advertises for a stern, no-nonsense nanny, while the children write their own ad asking for a sweet, kind, fun nanny. Mr. Banks rips up their letter and throws it into the fireplace. (laughs) Not dramatic at all. No, not at all. (laughs) But a wind blows the scraps up and out of the chimney. Mmm, foreshadowing. Mm. (laughs) Mr. Banks is preparing to interview dozens of seemingly old nannies when a strong wind blows them all away and in flies Mary Poppins on her umbrella in a scene that still looks... Really cool. Like, it's very simple, but I got those, like, slight butterflies just seeing her entrance. It is. It's Mm -hmm. a great entrance. And, yeah, it's actually quite drawn out, the amount of time they spend showing all of the other nannies flying away. (laughs) (laughs) It goes on for a while, but really, I'm sure that was very cool effects in 1964. Yeah, the like the special effects were definitely something they wanted to highlight in this film, but like mm-hmm. nannies pinwheeling away <laughs> down the sidewalk is <laughs> like a little much. Mary Poppins pretty aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Mary talks Mr. Banks into a tizzy, especially when she mentions receiving the ad that Mr. Banks destroyed, and she basically hires herself. Yeah, she then helps the children tidy their nursery using magic. Which, like, I don't think we learned any lessons in this scene about, like, cleaning up after yourself. Because she just, you just sing at them. You snap and everything happens and you don't have to do any work. Right. Yeah. So someone does it for you, which I'm sure is typically the case for Jane and Michael, who live in a house with multiple servants. Right. Yeah. Doesn't, there's not a lot of learning going on in this scene. But we get a spoonful of sugar and that's pretty. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Good song. Very good. Then they go for a walk and they meet Bert, who is now working as a screever or a street painter. And Mary uses her magic to transport them all into Bert's chalk drawing. And they have a lovely, colorful time as live action figures in a world of animation, singing the songs Jolly Holiday and Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, riding carousel horses, meeting dancing penguin waiters before the rain forces them to abandon their chalk world. And the next day they have a second adventure where they meet Bert's uncle Albert, who's played by the lovely Ed Wynn, Mm -hmm. who played the Mad Hatter in the animated Alice in Wonderland. And they try to save him from a bout of uncontrollable laughter that causes him to float to the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And instead they end up having a tea party He's the Bad Hatter. Ah. (laughs) I sense a theme with tea parties. (laughs) And then they sing, I love to laugh before the sad thought of leaving grounds them all and Mary and the children go home. Mm -hmm. When they get home, Mary convinces Mr. Banks to take the children to the bank with him the next day. And then she sings the children the song Feed the Birds about the woman who sits outside St. Paul's Cathedral asking for tuppets a bag before they go to sleep. The next day, Michael and Jane see the woman on their way to the bank, and they ask their father if they can give her tuppence to feed the birds, and he calls them ridiculous, and he wants them to invest the money at the bank instead. Mm -hmm. 
But then at the bank, the bank partners, including old Mr. Dawes, sing Fidelity Fiduciary Bank (laughs) to try to convince Michael to part with his tuppence. When Mr. Dawes steals the tuppence out of Michael's hand, Michael attacks him, demanding his money back. Straight up steals (laughs) money from the hand of a small child. Yes. So, yeah. So Michael attacks him and demands his money back. And this causes a run on the bank as the other (laughs) customers overhear, which is super ridiculous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Michael and Jane escape the bank in the ensuing chaos and they run into Bert who is now working as a chimney sweep and sings Chim Chim Cheree as he takes them home. Mrs. Banks then asks Bert to look after the children for yeah. the evening. Yeah. <laughs> she just is going to pick a random stranger off the street. He brought sure. them home, so he must be reliable and responsible, right? Absolutely. Because it's Mary's day off. That's why all this has been happening. So Mary right. isn't around. Right. But Mary returns just in time for all four of them to be swept up the chimney and they travel across the rooftops and enjoy a chimney sweep ballet as they sing Step in Time. When they get home, they overhear Mr. Banks on a phone call with the bank partners asking for a meeting, and Michael and Jane try to give Mr. Banks the tuppence back to make amends. Mr. Banks returns to the bank where he's given a cashiering, which I had didn't know as a word until I started doing research about this plot, But a cashiering is like a ritual removal in like the military from your position. And there's also a scene earlier in the bank where there's like a a snare drum playing over the bank partners as they walk. So it Uh sounds like a like a military march. It's like, oh, military themes. I don't know what this means other than like rigor and order. But the cashiering was an interesting like actual word that I saw applied to this plot. So is that why they like destroy his hat yeah and like like they don't just fire him they destroy his right (laughs) the i think that's the like ritual part of it to try and make the parallel work Uh but like those actions aren't particular to the military or anything i think those are more status symbols that they're destroying but yes it's similar probably to like they would tear you know like a medal or a badge off of the uniform of someone in the military, something like that. Interesting. So similar idea. So he is given a cashiering and fired, but finds the tuppence in his pocket. And when asked what he has to say for himself, Mr. Banks blurts out supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. (laughs) (laughs) He then tells Mr. Dawes a joke that Michael had told him a few days ago that he hated at the time. And the joke causes Mr. Dawes to laugh and float towards the ceiling we later find out that he died as a result. He laughed himself to death. <laughs> so oh. intense. Oh my gosh. How do you feel about that, Mr. Banks? <laughs> well, he feels great because, well, right. I don't want to spoil it. I'll let you finish. Right. I'll be right there. I'll be right there. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, the wind changes and Mary is preparing to leave. Mr. Banks returns home after being missing all night. <laughs> Having repaired the children's kite, but I also expect he maybe went to the local pub <laughs> or something. Yeah, like there is literally a policeman in their home because they think he has died by suicide. It's very dark. Right. Very grim. It is very dark. But yes. like also, what were you doing? It did not take you the whole night to repair this kite. Right. right. <laughs> Just like running around town skipping. Probably. Yes, exactly. Coming up with the lyrics to Let's Go Fly a Kite. 
Right, which he sings right after coming home, and they all head to the park. And while they're there, Mr. Dawes Jr. makes Mr. Banks a junior partner at the bank. Hooray! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Great. So the moral of the story is murder your superior, and then you get hired for their position. Yeah. Huzzah! (laughs) And then Mary Poppins flies away, her job done. Yeah. That's what happens. That's it. You know, real simple. That's it. (laughs) Totally straightforward two and a half hour movie. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. When I saw the runtime, yes, I was like, oh boy. (laughs) I, we postponed this recording session because I saw the runtime and was like, I cannot. (laughs) I will not. Yeah, I just assumed it was like an hour and a half because everything, everything all the else animated is. films are like 120, 130. And I did not think about the fact that live action, plus like it was supposed to be a big deal. Like they're they're doing a lot with this film. I did yeah. not take any of that into consideration when I queued it up at like nine or whatever on, right. on Tuesday night. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> So, Erin, what memories do you have of Mary Poppins? This one is pretty common to me, I think. Like, I've watched it many times. I don't know it quite as well as some of the other Disney films, but it was definitely popular, I think, at... Well, we didn't own it, going back to my... (laughs) How do we judge how much I watch something by Mm -hmm. if we owned it or not on VHS? (laughs) I don't think we owned it, but my mom really likes Mary Poppins Mm -hmm. and like Let's Go Fly a Kite was commonly sung in our (laughs) household when I was little to the point where I, for a long time, I didn't remember that it was from Mary Poppins. I thought it was like a kid's songs song. Yeah. (laughs) And then I think, you know, I watched it again when I was like 12 or 13 and I was like, oh, it's from this. (laughs) (laughs) that makes a lot of sense that's why my mom sings it a lot but so i i love it partially because she loves it and i i think it's sweet i think the songs have always appealed to me i was singing all of them in the you know time leading up to our recording absolutely i don't know if i have any specific scenes that stand out to me I probably couldn't have told you all of the boring parts that happened, <laughs> mm-hmm. but I definitely could have told you about the animated segment and let's go fly a kite and cleaning the nursery and all the, the lively childish bits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have always felt slightly guilty because I don't love Mary Poppins. Oh yes. An outlier in mm-hmm. the Disney world I, probably. Yeah. I do feel like this film is quite beloved I think part of it is that I actually really dislike the Mary Poppins character. Mm, interesting. I actually don't think that she is that kind or nurturing. She comes across to me as somewhat stern. And <laughs> this is because I am much too overly sensitive. And I recognize <laughs> that as an adult. But... Yeah, I don't think I had a a real affinity for that character. Definitely have always loved the music. I think probably also because it was long. We maybe Mm -hmm. didn't watch it that often. Yeah. So, yes, and I 
have to say I felt validated rewatching it because I was like, yeah, I still don't like it. <laughs> it's not like I was missing out on something and, you know, now right. I see the light is like, no, this is <laughs> fine. <laughs> I think I feel about this film the way we've talked about hypothetical people feeling about other films that we have not been as kind to where like the nostalgia of it, the role it played in your childhood, the songs, something about it just like hits you in the heart when you watch it. Yeah. And I definitely feel that way about this movie, but like I could cut a good bit of it. (laughs) It's like, I enjoyed I love to laugh because I think that scene is sweet. And I think Edwin is a great character actor, but like it's kind of boring. It goes (laughs) on for so long and none of the jokes they tell are funny. (laughs) (laughs) Chris was watching it with me and he was like, gosh, what was the state of comedy in 1910 that anybody found these jokes hilarious? That's amazing. And also, like, I definitely gave them so much credit. Like, when you have the giggles and everything Mm -hmm. makes you laugh, that's kind of how I approach that scene. So, like, there's something about the atmosphere that makes anything funny. Sure. So I just ignored the jokes. But you're totally right. They're not. They're not great They're jokes. They're not good. <laughs> I would cut out all of the Jolly Holiday with Mary. Yeah. That all yes. was so boring. Yeah, the animation was way more boring than I remember. Yeah. It's yeah. Sad. I know. I just like it because of the carousel horses because I love horses and my mom loves carousel horses. So I was like, oh, cute thing, childhood connection. Yeah. <laughs> but like... It's not really that great. And then she wins the Derby. <laughs> it's like, what? Right, right. <laughs> Which is, I did not remember that that's the segue into supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> Me neither. No, I had no memory of that. Except I did remember, well, I remembered the song and of course had heard the song lots and lots on the Disney audio cassette tapes. Mm. Yes, of course. Yes. That's how I know pretty much all the words to that song. Exactly. Can I just say that when after the Jolly Holiday in the chalk drawing, they come home, they're getting ready for bed, and the kids are like, how can we sleep? We had the most exciting day. And Mary Poppins just straight up gaslights them and was like, no, we didn't. Nothing happened. Stop talking about it. Denying their reality. Yep, I I wrote down in my notebook, Mary Poppins gaslights the children. (laughs) Exactly. I was like, what? Why is this happening? Also, Mary Poppins is just so manipulative. (laughs) Yeah, no no love lost for Mary Poppins for me. I love Mary. Like, agreed that I don't know that I would have wanted her to be my nanny, (laughs) but... (laughs) I enjoy her that character seems like so much. That a strong indicator, Aaron. <laughs> well, not like because she would have not taken care of me well, but she I mean, might not have she... taken care of you well, emotionally speaking. Yeah, maybe she wouldn't have. I I think it's really the scenes with her and Mr. Banks that I like because I don't like him because, mm. you know, he's not supposed to be super lovable. You're supposed to sympathize a little bit, but like he is, he needs to be reformed. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about, but I really like the way she like talks him in circles and gets what she wants, but does it in this like upright, polite British accent. And (laughs) 
I think that's really funny. <laughs> there are some very, very clever comedic moments. Like mm-hmm. Mary Poppins says, there's something you absolutely must know. I never explain anything <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is an excellent line. <sighs> oh, I will. I don't know that this will come up in our discussion. So I like <laughs> feel the need to say it mm-hmm. that the one moment where I was like, I felt very judged by the film <laughs> was when <laughs> we go to the, the, I love to laugh sequence and Mary is describing the like horrible ways that people laugh. <laughs> yes. And one of them is people who laugh through their teeth. And I think when I'm not like full on guffawing, I a hundred percent laugh through my teeth. If you listen to this podcast, you probably hear me do it almost every time. And I was like, oh no, that's me. <laughs> do I have a terrible, annoying laugh? I've been meaning to tell you, Aaron, this whole time. It's been oh, great. Rachel, you on have all such a us. fun laugh, and mine is so hissy, according to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you can change. Now Mary Poppins can change your life. You've learned how to laugh appropriately. We'll just go forward from here. Okay. I'm going to practice through this whole episode. Whenever I laugh, I'm going to try and do it with a nice round, open mouth, yes. a good a good ha. But she, I mean, she doesn't like the single ha either. There's really no winning. No. <laughs> I look forward to editing out all of your laughing <laughs> as we go forward. Excellent, excellent. Shall we talk about where Mary Poppins came from? Yes, we definitely should, because that has a lot of bearing on the movie, I would say. Absolutely. And clearly she is a complex, interesting character, if we've been talking about her this long already. Mm -hmm. So Mary Poppins, like many other Disney films, is based on a book specifically a English children's book written by the Australian English author P.L. Travers. P.L. Travers is the pen name of Pamela Lyndon Travers, originally Helen Lyndon Goff. So Travers was, as I said, born in Australia and had a very difficult childhood. Her father died likely of causes related to his alcohol use. And Travers was actually her father's first name. So that's where she got her pen name from eventually. But several of the events of her childhood seem to have inspired Mary Poppins. And in fact, after her father's death, when Travers, the oldest of several siblings took to caring for her younger sisters, she would tell them stories about a nanny named M. Poppins. So this character was one that originated in Travers's childhood and mm-hmm. was likely inspired in part by Travers's great aunt, Helen Moorhead, who reportedly used to say, spit spot into bed. <laughs> I hate to interrupt, but I'd love to mention her mother, who is like the inspiration-ish for Mrs. Banks, though, in in her books, not necessarily in the Disney version. Mm. But there was a 
time when, you know, she was doing such a good do- job can't, taking care of her younger siblings that her mother didn't really feel like she was needed anymore and decided to kill herself mm-hmm. and did not succeed and came home. But P.L. Travers, she knew this was what her mother was planning to do and that sorrow and also the abandonment and that feeling of abandonment from both of her parents is something a lot of people have speculated has influenced the bank's children and how she has written their parents versus the presence of Mary Poppins or her great aunt who eventually took care of them. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. And actually this is perhaps a good time, even though it's early in the episode for me to bring up my recommendation all right, everybody write down what you think it is, and then you get 100 <laughs> points if you get it right. <laughs> yes, my recommendation is, of course, the film Saving Mr. Banks. It's a live-action film about, well, it's partially about P.L. Travers's childhood that we're currently describing. And her father, I think, is very... Uh, very well depicted by Colin Farrell, a really lovely performance. Mm-hmm. And then, so it's it's simultaneously about Travers's childhood as well as about the process that Walt Disney went through wooing Travers in order to make the film, which I'm sure Aaron will tell us all about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so Saving Mr. Banks, it's a really lovely movie. I'm not sure how historically accurate it is necessarily, <laughs> but Tom Hanks is Walt Disney. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Right. I mean, ideal casting. Ideal. Emma Thompson plays P.L. Travers. So it's it's definitely worth a watch if you haven't seen it for whatever reason. Mm. Yeah. I watched it, maybe saw it in theaters even. But I remember I saw it a while ago when it was new. And I enjoyed it. And, you know, I mean, I love Disney. So usually anything associated with Disney and the Disney lore is going to get my interest at least a little bit. But I remember mostly liking it, but being a little like, eh, it's kind of boring at times. Mm. And I can't remember how everything is depicted, but I am I feel pretty good about labeling it as Disney propaganda. <laughs> oh, at labeling <laughs> Saving Mr. Banks as Disney propaganda? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I... So... I really love that movie. Mm. I've seen it multiple times. And like I even like rented it on Amazon at one point because I was like, (laughs) I just really this was obviously before Disney Plus existed. It's like I just really feel like watching Saving Mr. Banks of all the movies (laughs) in the world. And I do think I mean, of course, it's Disney propaganda to a certain extent. But I don't think it is entirely like through rose-colored glasses necessarily. I think they were selective in their storytelling, maybe. (laughs) Some things that they didn't highlight, especially about Travers's life. But all in all, I think it's a pretty good movie. I am not sure if it accurately reflected how Travers ultimately felt about the Mary Mm -hmm. Poppins film. Yes. Yeah, I... I'll be curious. I'll try and remember to circle back and see if you still think it's a pretty accurate depiction. Because I genuinely can't fully remember Mm -hmm. after I do my history segment and we get to see 
how Disney treated P.L. Travers and also mm. how Travers felt about this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, just a little bit more about Travers and the actual yeah. publication of Mary Poppins. So Travers had a domestic partnership with playwright Madge Bernand. So that, for example, is not something mentioned in Saving Mr. Banks at all. But it seems that... Travers wrote Mary Poppins mostly while she was in bed recovering from pleuritis in the winter of 1933. And in a New Yorker article from 2005, Flanagan wrote that it was likely Madge who sent the manuscript to a London publisher, Gerald Howe. He accepted it immediately. So Mary Poppins was first published in 1934 with original drawings by Mary Shepard, whose father, Ernest Shepard, happened to have illustrated the Winnie the Pooh books, which would inspire a later Disney film. And Travers apparently was very involved in every element of the production of her books, picking colors for the covers, the typeface, so on and so forth. Travers would go on to write a total of eight Mary Poppins books, the first, as I said, in 1934, and the last one in 1988. So yeah, quite a large span. Yeah, I think four had come out by the time the movie was made, I believe. Yeah, yeah. One other thing that I want to mention about the first Mary Poppins book is that it had a chapter entitled Bad Tuesday that was rewritten twice because it featured racist stereotypes. Oh, I did not hear about this. Yes. So the chapter was a story about how the children traveled to various parts of the globe. The descriptions and the illustrations had racist caricatures of Chinese people, people in sub-Saharan Africa, and North American indigenous people. (laughs) So it was revised first in 1967 and then again in 1981. We're thinking about what are the caricatures that a white Australian English woman would have in her mind, the racism she might have had, and that clearly came through in her writing in 1934. Mm. Uh, But, you know, I I suppose some credit to her for revising it. Mm. I did learn this in a book that I think you would find interesting. It is called... Is the Cat in the Hat Black? Mm. Racial Diversity in Children's Literature. Oh, okay. I mean, start with Dr. Seuss. Goodness gracious. I know, exactly. (laughs) Lots to talk about there. So, something to check out uh, if you're curious about that sort of thing. It was published in 2019, so. Interesting. So that's all I have about the source material specifically. The only thing I'll add is that they diverged quite a bit from the source material in terms of the setting. The book was set in the 1930s rather than 1910. We'll talk about how Mrs. Banks is a suffragette, and that was entirely (laughs) created for the movie. Mrs. Banks of the books was very different than how she was portrayed in the film yeah i think the suffragette portion of this 
conversation is the part I'm most looking forward to. Mm-hmm. So stay tuned, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but first, let's learn about some history. Yeah. The reason that Disney wanted to work on this story in the first place is because his daughters loved Mary Poppins. Yeah. And they were like, hey, Dad, you should make a film out of this. And he was like, okie dokie. So <laughs> he tried to get the rights from P.L. Travers for Mary Poppins for like 20 years. And yeah. she would not give them up. Uh, he first asked her for them in 1938. And she refused. She had seen other adaptations of books, both by Disney and other production companies, and she just didn't feel they were consistently good representations of the source material. Fair enough. She had also been approached by Goldwyn of Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer to make a film and Mm -hmm. turned him down as well. So she wasn't sure that Disney could also make a live-action film well enough since the studio was still mostly known for its animation. So Disney just kind of periodically reached out. He was very stubborn about it. He knew that this was something that they would be good at. And eventually she did relent. Uh, It took until 1961. (laughs) Uh, And Disney visited her in person in London to secure the film rights from her, hoping his charm would win her over. (laughs) Um, And apparently it did, or maybe she just needed him to leave her alone right stop harassing me (laughs) right (laughs) but the caveat was that travers would have script approval rights Mm -hmm. which had never happened with source material before so that was a new hiccup that they had to deal with pretty much the whole time yeah she was consulted on the script as promised though she and walt had different opinions from the start and she was often again forced to relent rather than truly approving of the studio's decisions these conversations happened usually via letter or telegram which also left travers too far behind in the process to actually create change she wasn't able to you know be there at the time that they were making the decisions you know everything was slightly delayed by their having to write to each other mm-hmm. which helped Disney just kind of make some decisions. Yeah, I'm sure some of that was intentional. Yeah. Yes, especially like the longer it went on, I bet the less often he wrote, but I don't have proof of that. (laughs) Though she did have to approve and she did approve, but, you know, under duress, it seems. Mm -hmm. At Disney's request, she did visit the studio for a little while toward the end of the scripting process. Because Disney hoped it would impress her and show her what a great job they were doing with her work. But this was a woman who had worked with T.S. Eliot and William Butler Yeats. She was a poet. Like, she had worked with some of the most impressive literary minds of the time. Mm -hmm. She was not easily impressed by Walt Disney. Yeah. So really, it only gave her the chance to critique things in real time, (laughs) which was great for her to finally be able to be there and make her voice heard. But Disney was already pretty frustrated with the roadblocks that she was putting up. So he went to Palm Springs for the length of her visit, leaving the Sherman brothers to meet with her, Mm -hmm. which is a big part of saving Mr. Banks, as I remember. Yes. So she had a number of criticisms that she was able to talk to the Sherman brothers about. And it was often like, I don't like this change you've made or like, how are you even going to make this make sense? And the Sherman brothers would go Disney magic. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone would move on. Right. (laughs) So 
she didn't like that Mary Poppins was being made softer and less formidable and less stern, which makes me believe that you, Rachel, would especially not like the book version. I do not think I would. <laughs> have you read them? I haven't. No, no, I haven't. Yeah. Okay. Once again, we haven't read the book. <laughs> and she also didn't like that Mary Poppins was actually slightly less conceited as well as more attractive in the film version. Oh, interesting. They really tried to make her more likable. Yeah, they wanted her to be nurturing and funny and kind. And like, she isn't in the books. Like, she can be kind, but it's not not a consistent part of her personality. Mm -hmm. She was also very firm that Mary and Bert's relationship needed to be kept completely platonic. Mm. So Jolly Holiday was originally going to be a more obviously romantic song, sure, but they made it less flirtatious. There's still an interesting part of that song that we should talk about. And it does seem like some of that came from Travers's ideas of class and class Mm. status that it wouldn't be appropriate or proper for someone like Mary of her status to be with a laborer like Bert. Yeah. Yeah. I read things like that too about her really sticking with the British social hierarchy. Yes. She also hated that Mr. Banks was so cold hearted being cruel to the children when He should have been flawed, but always loving. Hmm. And she hated that fussy, ditzy, but loving Mrs. Banks would become a suffragette fighting for something and ignoring her children. (laughs) (laughs) So she'd just Uh. rather Mrs. Banks be ignoring her children for no reason? Because doesn't Mrs. Banks ignore the children in the books too? Yes, she isn't upset with the ignoring the children and being distracted and doing other things because that's part of, you know, what the plot is doing. She's upset that Mrs. Banks could be passionate about something. Uh Uh-huh. I believe she said to the Sherman brothers, like, why do you want her to work so hard when they were explaining like all this stuff that she was going to be doing outside of the home? Because I think, I think it was also like Travers, believed that her being a housemaker and like her her maybe some social engagements was enough which is more modern in thinking that like you don't have to be a working woman let's accept women who make all sorts of choices but i don't really think that's where her brain was at no i i don't think so that's interesting (laughs) though yeah She also wasn't a big fan of the music and originally wanted Disney to use standards from the Edwardian period rather than original songs. And he obviously refused because that was his whole thing. Oh, I mean, I'm glad Disney won that one. That would have been terrible. Yeah. Yeah. The Sherman brothers took a lot of inspiration from Edwardian standards Hmm. to like create the songs. So hopefully she felt that through the music, but I don't, I don't have any record of that. Mm -hmm. She also hated the animation. (laughs) (laughs) And that was part of why she denied Disney the film rights to begin with, right? Is that she really was sort of against animation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he said he'd do a live action and he put animation in it anyway. And so she would not give him the rights to do any of her future books. Wow. Yeah. 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 She was really mad at that, the animation. I have a anecdote about that but i'll come to that a little later okay Uh, talking about other people this film is julie andrews's feature film debut i did not realize that 
She's a baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, she's very young. I just thought she was more well-known in film prior to mm. this, but I mean, obviously not. No. Yeah. I mean, she had done, you know, Broadway and she'd done lots of stage productions and she'd been on like the Ed Sullivan show and stuff like that, but she had not done film yet. Hmm. So there was a interview I saw with her where she was like, she didn't know any of the like lingo. So they would yeah. like tell her to do something or like move somewhere and she would have no idea what they were saying to her and she had to like really learn on the fly and apparently dick van dyke was very helpful in that realm so that's nice that is (laughs) nice good old dick van dyke whose cockney accent i have to say Mm. is just unbearably awful it's so bad (laughs) (laughs) i definitely know bert like his bert well enough that i can ignore it because I'm expecting it. I'm so used to it. It just is Bert. Mm -hmm. But like when I try to remove myself and like actually listen to him speak, it's so (laughs) terrible. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It's actually like, it's become a part of like acting lore where, you know, when people are doing accents from places that they're not from, they like, say to the person teaching them, like, do not make me sound like Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, and he he acknowledges it too. Like, he knows that it was bad. In 2017, he was selected to receive an award for television excellence from BAFTA, British Academy mm-hmm. of Film and Television Arts. And in his speech, he said, quote, I appreciate this opportunity to apologize to the members of BAFTA for inflicting on them the most atrocious Cockney accent in the history of cinema. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad he has a good sense of humor about it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he doesn't care at all. And I mean, clearly people still love Bert and the movie did super well. So he really has nothing to lose. Yeah. So Disney found Julie Andrews because he saw her in Camelot on Broadway Mm. and like found her backstage and convinced her to do (laughs) Mary Poppins. Wow. But just before Disney offered her the role, she was being considered for the role of Eliza Doolittle in the film version of My Fair Lady. Oh. That's a role that she originated on Broadway, but was passed over and Audrey Hepburn was chosen for the role instead. Interesting. It is interesting. Remember that, folks. We're going to come back to that. Okay, okay. (laughs) Now, Dick Van Dyke's turn. Disney had been a fan of his for a long time. They loved the Dick Van Dyke show. He was an easy choice to play Bert. And despite initial hesitation, Disney did give in to Van Dyke's request that he play the senior Mr. Dawes because they did a screen test and he proved that he could be an old man and not just like this gangly, young, funny guy. So that was Dick's idea. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder why he was drawn to that. I don't know. Yeah, maybe he just likes the parallels or maybe he likes Mr. Dawes's arc. I could see that appealing Mm -hmm. to him where he gets to kind of be redeemed in the end through laughter. That sounds very Dick Van Dyke. It does. It does. He also had no prior dance training before this film. The choreographers were so impressed with him and said he picked everything up super quickly and given his tendency towards physical comedy, he was better prepared than most for the athletic and silly numbers. Yeah. But like I went back and watched the step in time scene Mm -hmm. again after I learned that and like 
I'm super impressed that Dick Van Dyke learned all that choreography and looks almost as good as the guys around him. Yeah. Pretty cool. He, he did great. And even in some of the other parts, like when the dancing penguin number yeah. is really good in that too. So Yeah. Ooh, glad you brought that up. And uh, like maybe we'd come back to it, but I have another thing I want to say. <laughs> These are maybe Aaron's extras, but too bad. Um, did you notice how... I'd never noticed this before this watching when he pulls down his pants so that they're like making his legs restricted and look more like where a penguin's legs end. Uh-huh. The like the crotch of the pants gets lower, but the pants continue like all the way up his torso and disappear yes. under his jacket. Yes, I did <laughs> notice that. I I definitely noticed that. It's the longest fly that's ever existed right. on any <laughs> pair of pants. And Chris has threatened to start wearing pants like that exclusively. So I'm terrified. Oh, no. Yeah. No, Christopher, yeah. don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just like, did I guess they had to like custom make him a second pair of pants that, you know, when there's like the, the camera transitions and he's clearly put on a different pair of pants because he didn't just pull down the ones that were like a normal waist height. Right. It's like they custom made him penguin pants. <laughs> Disney magic, Aaron. Disney, Disney magic. magic. <laughs> uh, you guys can't de- see the spirit fingers I do every time I say Disney magic, but they're there. <laughs> they're there. <laughs> okay. Back to the history. The film was directed by Robert Stevenson and written by Bill Walsh and Don DeGrady. As I said earlier, they're all established members of the Disney live action movie team. And of course, I must mention the Sherman brothers who composed the score and wrote all the songs in the film, which is a big step up from just doing a couple of songs in Sword in the Stone. They mm-hmm. took on way more here and like knocked it out of the park, honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Many of the songs, like Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and Fidelity Fiduciary Bank, are based on the standards that I had mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. They were both trying to incorporate a little bit of that. Uh, And they were also responsible for a significant portion of the plot's development. Hmm. They were the ones who decided that Mr. Banks should be emotionally absent when previously suggestions had been he be physically absent, like he had been drafted and was off at war. And that was part of why the children needed a nanny. But Mm. instead they added this like emotional basis of him being absent. Hmm. And really because of that, Mr. Banks is a major character. I mean, his transformation is the primary narrative arc of the movie. So yeah. really, the any coherence in the plot sounds like it was likely due to the Sherman brothers and that decision. Yeah, for sure. They That was a huge change that they got to be part of. They also created the song Sister Suffragette for Glynis Johns. Because when she heard she wasn't being cast as Mary Poppins, Mm -hmm. the role was being taken by a much less experienced actress, Julie Andrews. Glynis Johns thought she could contribute more to the film, hint, hint. And Disney Mm -hmm. basically was like, oh, yeah, we definitely have like a big number planned for you. And then (laughs) she left and he turned around to the Sherman Brothers and he was like, get on that (laughs) right now. (laughs) So they changed the words to a song they'd already written about Mary Poppins called Practically Perfect Hmm. into Sister Suffragette. Interesting. 
it's unclear why the change happened, but much of the reading I implied that this was a pretty late change right before the script went into production. And I think that it's entirely possible that Mrs. Banks wasn't even a suffragette before the song was added. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Which like another huge thing that is the Sherman brothers fault potentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Contribution fault. So right. close. <laughs> well, I definitely have some thoughts about how the song interacts with the narrative. As but do I'll I. Save that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Also on the Sherman Brothers, Walt Disney loved Feed the Birds, and he would occasionally have the Sherman Brothers come to his office at the end of the day and play it for him before they all went home. It was really sweet. I will say that song, although beautiful, does not seem to serve much narrative purpose or have much to do with anything. Clearly, Mary is coaching the children into wanting to give their tuppence to the bird lady but did we need a whole (laughs) song to do that yeah i don't know i mean no we didn't need a whole song right i mean they probably could have thought of something much more straightforward that michael wants to use the tuppence for that is more innocent or generous or whatever like they don't have to create this whole character Mm -hmm. but i expect it was probably because walt loved the song so much yeah I hope that for the next Mary Poppins sequel, it's about the bird woman. Ooh, I'd like that. Do you think, (laughs) I'm going to go with no, you don't think this. (laughs) Do you think that the bird woman in Mary Poppins is the same as the bird woman in Home Alone 2? (laughs) I think they're twin sisters. (gasps) Yeah. Wow. So it's going to be, you know, Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins Returns, Mary Poppins Three, the bird women's revenge. Ooh, both of them. Both of them together, Ooh. reunited in bird sisterhood. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if we had episode titles that weren't just the names of the films, I think reunited in bird sisterhood would be a really good one. <laughs> it would. <laughs> oh, amazing. All right, okay. all right, all right. Mary Poppins premiered on August 27th, 1964 to a packed and swanky house mm. at the Grauman's Chinese Theater in L.A. Mm-hmm. At the end of the film, there was a five-minute standing ovation. One person who was almost not present was P.L. Travers yeah. because Disney didn't invite her. Yep, yep, uh. yep, yep. But she showed up anyway. Yeah, she managed to basically like embarrass a Disney executive into giving her a ticket. <laughs> so she she made it there anyway. This is one of my anecdotes that I found that apparently afterward Richard Sherman recalled that she tracked down Walt at the after party, which was held in a giant white tent adjoining the theater, and she said, "Well, the first thing to go is the animation sequence." <laughs> and then Disney looked at her and said, Pamela, that ship has sailed and walked away. <laughs> oh my gosh. I think they would like rip each other's throats out if they could. <laughs> yes. And I do think saving Mr. Banks to some extent gets at that. I think it fairly depicts the animosity that existed mm. between them. Yes. Yeah. 
I expect, again, I haven't seen it in a long time, but from my memory, I feel like Disney is very like, just let us make it this beautiful, charming thing that children will love. And then she feels kind of like the grumpy lady who doesn't really get it, but like comes around in the end, which is, you know, the propaganda aspect of like Mm -hmm. you're rooting for Disney the whole time, especially because we already know the film. We know that it's beloved. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to get people to side with her if they like the movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think definitely rose colored glasses for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's a bad movie. I found it very moving. It's quite moving. Yes. And I think that's why I liked it. It's about her life, but it's also, I think, a more humanized version of Disney than we usually see. I think they maybe they did not go so far as to depict him entirely realistically, but you see his stubbornness. You see Mm -hmm. some of those uh, less likable traits, I think. Yeah, that is nice because we get so little of that from Disney as an entity. Right. He's always that great man with all those beautiful ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, Mary Poppins received glowing reviews okay. and audiences loved it immediately. Time said the sets are luxuriant, the songs lilting, the scenario witty, but impeccably sentimental, and the supporting cast only a pin feather short of perfection. Hmm. Aha, here comes the fun part. <laughs> so Julie Andrews and Audrey Hepburn Remember those ladies? Talked about them earlier. I do. <laughs> We're both nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Actress that year. Oh. And Andrews won. <laughs> Suck it, Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> then Andrews also won the Oscar for Best Actress, which Audrey Hepburn wasn't even nominated for. Oh, wow. <laughs> and to top it all off, in Julie Andrews's Best Actress Oscar acceptance speech, she thanked Jack Warner, who was the producer of My Fair Lady and one of the Warner Brothers, for, quote, making this whole thing possible. <laughs> wow. If that is not just the best revenge possible, I don't know what is. That's incredible. Right. And it's also, like, it sounds pretty bitter I guess when I'm telling it right now but imagining Julie Andrews doing these things and like she was super like sweet and cute like the Oscars because she was so young Mm -hmm. and like she you know she felt very honored to be there and to win it and so she made this like small crack at someone which from anyone else I feel like would have maybe like hurt her. Yeah. But apparently Jack Warner like laughed hysterically in the audience when she said it, everyone applauded her. And it like, it's just another thing that like, of course Julie Andrews can say this and still feel like this lovely, sweet lady. Yeah. Yes, of (laughs) course. (laughs) The film was nominated for a total of 13 Academy Awards. Wow. Including best picture. And it won five Best Actress, Best Film Editing, Best Original Music Score, Best Visual Effects, and Best Original Song for Chim Chim Cheree. Mary Poppins is Disney's only film to earn a Best Picture nomination during his lifetime. Hmm. And the film also won two Grammy Awards for Best Original Score and Best Recording for Children. Oh, wow. 
Yeah, it was super well awarded. Big win for the Sherman brothers, too. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like, I can't believe they went from Sword in the Stone to this. Yeah. Good job, guys. <laughs> Much <Crushed it>. improved. <laughs> they get the award for biggest improvement. <laughs> <laughs> Most improved composers. Yes. <laughs> in its initial North American run, Mary Poppins earned, wait for it, $31 million in what? rentals. <laughs> That is insane. I know. And like, we've only covered animated films so far. Like, I that could have something to do with it. But I don't think the live action were making a ton of money. So no matter what, this was huge. It was huge. Yeah. Now I'm just curious what the parent trap made. <laughs> <laughs> so the parent trap which is live mm-hmm. action 1961 made 25 million. Mm, that's still a lot. That's still a lot. Wow. So that tells me that their live action was consistently making quite a bit more. We're like in a totally different league compared to well, their animated films which were making what? Like Lady and the Tramp made like 5 million. Yeah, definitely smaller, but I mean Parent Trap is I think one of their better live actions. Yeah, that's fair. Anyway, anyway, I'm back sorry. to this one. Just to put that thirty-one million in perspective, yeah, thirty-one million dollars in nineteen sixty-four is equal to about two hundred and fifty million dollars today. Woo! That's a lot of money. That's like a Marvel movie. Good haul. Yeah, actually, that's like an opening weekend Marvel movie. So maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it did well. It did extremely well, and it was made on a $5 million-ish dollar budget, so this was a crazy profit. Oh yeah. And most of that went towards purchasing land in Florida for the future site of Walt Disney World. Wow. He finally got the money to do what he needed to do to open a second park. Well, in that case, I'm glad that Mary Poppins did so well, because I am glad that Disney World exists. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to see if there's another film that compares to this anytime soon. But yeah, it might have been the only thing that could make this possible. Yeah. So it was a huge success. It blew every other film so far out of the water. And it was considered Walt Disney's crowning theatrical achievement at the time. Now it is still often considered Disney's greatest live action movie. And it's like truly beloved. Of course, it has completely overshadowed Travers' original character and Mm. stories, so it is now the primary version that people mean when they say Mary Poppins, which is exactly what she was afraid of when she saw how things were coming together and the, like, spread that Disney had. There is one report that she was crying at the end of the film, and it Mm -hmm. wasn't tears of joy. It was her knowing her life was going to be changed forever yeah. from this moment forward. Mm-hmm. And like, she did benefit from it somewhat. She made a ton of money. Right. Oh yeah. She made a ton of money, mm-hmm. <laughs> mainly that, but she also got like speaking gigs. She taught at certain universities that she might not have had access to beforehand. And she liked those things. Like she was happy about those opportunities but she hated that when you said Mary Poppins, you didn't think of her character. You thought of Disney's. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. That's my history. There's a lot of it. Pretty good. But it was really interesting. Yeah. I had a lot of fun researching this one. Good. Good. It is reassuring to know that 
this is the last film before Disney dies. And it's good to know that he went out on a high note compared yes. to The Sword in the Stone, which was not our favorite. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely got some redemption here. He got <laughs> all of that fame and fortune and attention that he thought his work deserved. It didn't come in a fully animated format. And he was alive long enough to start working on Jungle Book. Mm -hmm. But this is the last film he would see released. Yeah. Well, it does have the classic Disney stamp of family values mm -hmm. with some trademark patriarchy, classism, racism. <laughs> so shall we talk about some of those things? Yeah, let's do it. We got a lot to say. <laughs> At its heart, Mary Poppins is really a story about family dynamics. The ostensible reason for Mary Poppins is a rival, as is implied in the title of the film Saving Mr. Banks, is to bring Mr. and Mrs. Banks around to wanting to be more involved and caring for their children. Yes. In this way, as Flanagan wrote, quote, Mary Poppins advocates the kind of family life that Walt Disney had spent his career both chronicling and helping to foster on a national level. Father at work, mother at home, children flourishing. It's there. I'm very conflicted because mm. on its surface, emotionally absent parents, we can generally agree the research suggests is not great for child development. However, mm -hmm. I think that means something very different for Mr. Banks than it does for Mrs. Banks, right? Yes. So the moral of the story is that really parents need to take better care of their children, but what that actually means is the mother should be caring for the children and the dad should love them but he still needs to go to work yes yep she is the one who is expected to be there and caring for them full time and he's just supposed to love them maybe that would be nice <laughs> <laughs> but he also needs to go work and make money yes yeah mm. <laughs> something that i do really love about saving mr banks is there's a really moving scene at the end and I don't actually know if this happened. After Travers visited the studio in Burbank, she returns to London. And there's a scene in Saving Mr. Banks where Walt Disney then goes and visits her in London because he's mm. concerned that it's falling through and that it's not going to happen. He talks about his childhood and how we don't get to choose our parents. Mm -hmm. So this is a story about sort of rewriting the parents that both of them had Aww. into the parents that they wish they could have had, which is a really deeply moving sentiment. So yeah, on the one hand, I have a lot of empathy for that, of course. But on the other hand, I am very concerned with the messaging around what <laughs> that had to mean for mothers. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that is where the last minute edition of Sister Suffragette explains a lot for me mm -hmm. because Sister Suffragette 
has a lot of the lines that are talking about how wonderful this thing should be getting votes for women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our daughter's daughters will adore us and all that. And I'm like, well, yeah, like, I guess that's me. And I'm very glad that I can vote. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm also also a white woman. And we can talk about how the she is the embodiment of white feminism. Yes. And how the Votes for Women movement is a white feminist movement. But like that song did elicit a little bit of like pride and excitement in me mm-hmm. in a way that the rest of the film completely squashes. Yes. Because she's supposed to give this up and be part of her family and her activities outside of the home are seen as frivolous. And she's made super weak in her relationship with Mr. Banks, which we'll also talk about, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So I was so confused because I was like, why did you write these lines about how wonderful and important what she's doing and this movement she's part of is, and then take all of that away from her and declare it bad And I think it's quite possible because before they wrote Sister Suffragette, she was probably just going to like social functions or something like she was just being negligent in a way that didn't rely on something important. And then the Sherman brothers wrote Sister Suffragette. She turned into a suffragette at the last minute Mm -hmm. and it created this imbalance in her story. It's a pretty notable imbalance and it is interesting to consider the timing of when her identity as a suffragette became part of the story and the fact that the actor, Glennis Johns, wanted a song and that's part of why they wrote it. But also the timing of when this movie came out is important to consider. Mm -hmm. So the suffragettes are often considered to be the first wave of feminism. Mm Mm-hmm. And as you said, very much a feminism centered on the needs of white women, especially upper middle class, upper class white women. This film came out in 1964. Uh The birth control pill was introduced in the late 50s, early 60s. The publication of The Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan, which is widely considered to be the start of the second wave of feminism was in 1963, one year before this film comes out. So Mm -hmm. you have to draw the parallel between the suffragette movement and second wave feminism. And if you do that, it's impossible to see Mary Poppins as anything other than a condemnation of the women's movement. (laughs) Yes, I 100% (laughs) agree. My only difference is whether it's intentional or not. And like, Removing intention, that's the way this film is read, for sure. Yeah. I mean, Disney's all about bringing families together and has women in domestic roles throughout the films that we're talking about. So, like, I don't think it's a stretch for him to be like, yeah, sure, let's throw in this condemnation of the modern women's movement, too. I don't think they actually (laughs) have that conversation out loud, but I'm sure it didn't. It wasn't a problem. But I want to hope that Mrs. Banks was kind of a bland nothing lady prior to this song being written. Mm -hmm. So they made a change at the last minute without really thinking about the implications. And then again, if they did think about the implications, I don't think they would have done anything about it necessarily because the song was probably more important than anything else. But the intention there 
makes me feel a little bit differently about like how mad am I mm. at Disney, the Sherman brothers, Bill Walsh, whoever. <laughs> right. Even if they are not intending to make a sweeping statement about the women's movement in general, the mantra of second wave feminism is the personal is political. So if they are making commentary about what this individual woman should be doing in her family life, which they are, mm -hmm. then yeah, feminists would argue you're making a political statement, whether you <laughs> intend to or not. And there's a great article that we read by Nim Mayhall, written in mm -hmm. 1999. It's really worth a read because it goes into this analysis in way more detail than we can here. But just one quote that I'll pull out is... In Walt Disney's Mary Poppins, Mrs. Banks, an ardent suffragette and mother of two, serves as progenitor of modern women. Mary Poppins arrives precisely to save the Banks' children from their, quote, liberated mother, who must be educated into the proper maternal relation with them. Mm -hmm. I pulled that quote, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also... It feels like it is supposed to be a little tongue-in-cheek, but the way you mentioned, the way that Mrs. Banks interacts with Mr. Banks, she is so subservient. Yes. She completely downplays her own abilities, talking about how she's totally messed up with this nanny business, and oh, thank goodness, George, thank goodness that you're going to do it, because I would have made a huge mess of it. Yep. When Mr. Banks like reprimands her for not looking after the nanny and like not making sure the situation is fine, which is again, like putting that role entirely on the mother, mm -hmm. not at all his job. And then she says so meekly, I'm sorry, dear, I'll try to do better next time. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, stop it. <laughs> She's also apparently his secretary when he comes right. home because he's like, yes. write up this advertisement. And she's like, oh, right away. Of course. Right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That really surprised me. I didn't remember that scene at all and how she just sat down and was like, of course, I'll take dictation at a moment's notice. Yes. And like all the way through is like affirming him and like you're the smartest person I've ever met in my entire life, George Banks. Et cetera, et cetera, just stroking his ego. Yeah. The whole yeah. time. The first most obvious representation of this dichotomy between her fighting for something, for women's rights, mm -hmm. <laughs> and then coming home. And when Katie Nana, who's the original nanny, when she quits, she's trying to talk her into staying and is saying how much that this will upset Mr. Banks. Mm -hmm. And then she realizes she's still like wearing the sash and she like pulls it off and tells Emma, I think is the maid, like get rid of this. You know how the cause infuriates Mr. Banks. <laughs> so like he doesn't want you to have the right to vote and you're still going out and doing it. And then you like sing this really proud song about it when you come home, but you have no problem deferring to him and it's not like mm -hmm. it she seems perfectly happy and content and it's like blah. <laughs> it's all very blah and just the cherry on top of this very crap cake is at the very end yes when they're going to fly a kite every kite needs a tail won't be needing this suffragette sash anymore because mm -hmm. now i'm a good mother 
Yep. <laughs> uses her oh sash as the tail. It's terrible. It was the most like clear moment of symbolism. I, I feel like I've noticed in a long time of just like, ugh, yeah, the how quickly she's like, yeah, let's just get rid of this thing that I was passionate about, but not really. I she doesn't make sense, honestly. Like she does not make sense as a character, and that's why I think that like she would have at least been more consistent before she was turned into a suffragette, I hope. She yes. still would have advocated for things that I don't agree with, but at least she would have made sense as a character. Mm-hmm. I do wonder, and this is obviously going far outside the realm of anything that Disney and the filmmakers were attempting to <laughs> portray, <laughs> but I do think there are a lot of women who have been engaged in feminist activism who have felt like they could not be totally honest with their male partners or their family. So Mm -hmm. maybe there's something there. I don't know. But again, like that was clearly not any part of any male writer or director's thought pattern on this subject. Yeah. On the suffragette movement bit. Yeah. I would love to, talk a little bit about her line we're fighting for our rights militantly mm-hmm. and that's an appropriate word for her to use for what they're doing because it was part of the women's rights to vote and the votes for women movement with Emmeline Parkhurst who we read about in that article that like militant the militant movement the militant women's feminist movement is how it was referred to of chaining themselves to stuff eventually the hunger strikes mm-hmm. like that was considered militant they did set some stuff on fire like mm-hmm. that kind of stuff all fell in that realm so like it is a correct word to use for the time and based on the research that i'm sure they did into the british suffragette movement but hearing that word militantly in 2020 mm-hmm. of this like mm-hmm. tiny little prissy like upper middle class, middle class white woman with her little fist in the air when she says (laughs) women's rights to vote. It just felt so anachronistic for me to be watching Mm. it now. And I immediately thought about Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. and, you know, how this feels like a parallel with the civil rights movement in a lot of ways of how these women who were fighting militantly for their right to vote were hated in the time that they were doing the fighting And then that narrative has been flipped as people came around to the fact that, oh, women can vote. That's fine. How wonderful a way to support our nation. Like that narrative changed once people got used to the idea and were fine with it. And then they become the thing that you point to as like the way to do things, the way to fight, the way to be patriotic. Mm -hmm. And it immediately made me think of the civil rights movement, the 1960s and Martin Luther King and how he was hated at the time by white people and how they found his nonviolent protest. They still claimed violence mm-hmm. and there still was violence as a result. But like now people talk about, you know, MLK and Gandhi in the same breath as these perfect examples of protest. And those same people would have hated him in the 1960s, like mm-hmm. how we have changed the narrative to prevent further progress mm-hmm. and, how people use MLK and like he knew how to protest like correctly against the current black lives matter movement Mm -hmm. protests. 
Right. And it felt exactly the same way that like, we're now okay with these women fighting for their rights in a way that you weren't, the world wasn't initially when that movement was happening. Well, and I think it's also important to point out that again, this movie came out in 1964, the voting rights act, Mm -hmm. which granted the right to vote to black men did not get passed until the year after. So I have to imagine that at least some audience members would draw the parallel between the suffragette movement of the 19 teens, tens and teens, and the current fight for black people and other people of color to vote. Mm -hmm. And again, so then is Mary Poppins condemning that because they're saying it's not worthwhile or that people Mm. need to be, women need to be home with their children, not out protesting. Maybe. Yeah. I thought of it as just like a complete oversight and dismissal Mm. of the civil rights movement. Like I don't, I do not know how aware they were or how much the makers of the movie cared, but like it felt like they just ignored what was happening in the real world around them because it was black men and women fighting for their rights. And that has nothing to do Mm. with white women getting the right to vote in the 19 teens in Britain or in America. And it just puts more of that like hypocrisy Mm -hmm. into the women's, the white feminist votes for women movement. I think it also, like you're saying, it shows a thoughtlessness but also a fact that it was probably mostly white people in the audience going to oh, see yeah. these movies, right? So people who maybe wouldn't care about the civil rights movement and maybe some people who are blatantly against it. You know, it's it's interesting to think about the intentions of the filmmakers, the ignorance of the filmmakers, and then what that looked like on the flip side with their audience as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That segues pretty well into classism. Yeah. I would say. We hinted at that a little bit and mentioned that P.L. Travers had some classist notions of her own that were clearly written into her books and then it seems like carried through somewhat into the film. But the classist ideas in the film come off a little bit differently because of the American context, I think. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we've talked about the great melting pot with Lady and the Tramp. We've talked about the education bias and the myth of pulling oneself up by their bootstraps with Sword in the Stone. And I really see the messaging here as being somewhat consistent with that. In Mary Poppins, the decision to have Dick Van Dyke play both Bert and the head of the bank, Mr. Dawes, sounds like it was a decision made mostly based on the whimsy of Dick Van Dyke himself, but we could draw an interesting analysis from that. And in fact, Nim Mayhall does so. And this is a little bit longer of a quote, but I think it's worth it. Nim Mayhall writes, One doesn't have to look far beyond Dick Van Dyke's portrayal of Bert 
tripping over his American accent, to see the way in which American democratic notions of classlessness are employed to rewrite the class consciousness of the original books. And Van Dyke's later portrayal of the chairman of the bank, the elder Mr. Dawes, occupying the diametrically opposed class position to that held by Bert, points as well to the American desire to see class relationships as artificial and mutable. It's so interesting. Like, is that really how people thought of them? I feel like that would maybe change how we talked about Lady and the Tramp. I mean, I guess Tramp is Tramp is Bert. Bert and Tramp are the same. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> In a lot of ways. And like, why, why can this character move between those classes and those realms versus other characters? Mm-hmm. I don't completely buy that people would, I don't know if anyone would notice, I guess, in America. <laughs> like, yeah. I think the hierarchy would be clear to British audiences and like a little funny, a little modern and different from what P.L. Travers would have wanted Mm -hmm. to create or did originally. I wonder if Americans thought about class as like who is a member of what class in this story other than who they might relate to. Hmm. Like, I think that's where it would come through is like, do you see yourself as a Mr. Banks in like where you are in your life? Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself as a Mary Poppins? Do you see yourself as a Burt? Maybe if you see yourself as a Bert and then you find out that he also played Mr. Dawes, maybe that does affect some people. Mm. But I feel like it's more their emotional roles that probably would connect rather than the class or their profession. There was also an interesting article by Szymski that took a Marxist interpretation of Mary Poppins, which I think is fascinating. And obviously could not be further from what I'm sure the filmmakers were intending to portray, especially (laughs) given what we know about Walt Disney and workers' rights. But if we were to take a Marxist interpretation, Szymski writes, quote, the penultimate dance number in which the chimney sweeps acting as the proletariat union of workers invade the house of the bourgeois banks. Their entry into the bank's home suggests an uprising, admittedly benign, of the laboring class against its upper-class capitalist exploiters. (laughs) Ooh, I like that. I'm in. (laughs) I know. I know. I mean, I did feel like that's definitely an intentional comparison of like when these working soot-covered men come down the chimney and run through their beautiful home filled with china that almost breaks every day because there's a man with a cannon next door uh-huh. <laughs> um, like i definitely thought of like these these men are in a space they aren't supposed to be in both because they're super dirty and it's just like stop it take your shoes off at the door kind of thing right <laughs> but also like they would never live in this home. Mm-hmm. They are the on a similar level to like the servants who work here, not the people who own the home. Mm-hmm. So I buy that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's an interesting take for sure. And it <laughs> it does make a sort of inexplicable scene more explicable because the chaos... <laughs> 
again, this is another point that doesn't really drive the narrative forward much. Like the fact Mm -hmm. that all of these chimney sweeps come into the house, it's sort of a moment of comedy and not really anything else. Yeah. Yeah. No. We just have to get Bert back inside so he can teach Mr. Banks a lesson about caring for your children. But like he could have come back by himself. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) He didn't need to bring 40 men (laughs) into this home. Yeah. (laughs) I also thought it was interesting how like nannies and classism and class in general kind of interact Mm. and how that's different in British history versus American history mm-hmm. where like the British nanny was much more a thing that had existed already by 1964. Right. It was more of like when Queen Victoria was around and it was sort of short lived, but like as the population exploded and as there became this more hierarchical structure, it became a thing, especially after world war two that like, only the upper class had nannies. It right. was very much an uh, an aristocratic thing. So I feel like it definitely would have resonated with the British populace versus in America, nannies weren't really common, especially mm. in middle-class households, but they would become more common as more women started working outside of the household and you needed someone to provide childcare. So... Mary Poppins actually became the stereotype or the standard even that people looked to in nannies. Like Disney created this woman, this, this standard that Americans then actually judged people against before hiring them. And like, yeah, I just think that's so interesting. Another thing that entered the American consciousness and probably actually affected households in a way of like, I don't know, people buying Dalmatians after 101 Dalmatians. (laughs) Yeah, which is sort of funny because then that that is sort of the opposite of the film's moral, right? Like the film's moral (laughs) is like fire the nanny. I think that's in fact what Flanagan writes is like we're ignoring (laughs) the fact that the whole point is to not have a nanny. But but yeah, you're totally right. Yeah, they made her so appealing that she's what people remember, not the fact that She's only supposed to be there long enough to get them back on the correct track where they can take care of their own children. (laughs) Right, right. There's just a smidge of apparent racism in this. Just a smidge? Just a little bit? Separate from the fact that there are no black actors or actors of color in the whole thing. Yes. And all the stuff we've talked about with suffrage of like, we're just ignoring that black people didn't even have the right to vote. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So besides all of that. All of that. <laughs> a couple different scholars commented on the use of soot on the chimney sweeps as representing blackface in some way. Mm-hmm. And this is really interesting to me considering what we discussed with 101 Dalmatians where the dogs yeah. use soot to disguise themselves And that could be interpreted as a form of blackface. So one example of that, and this is Suzumski writing again, is, quote, when the children flee the bank, they are confronted by a dark image that initially frightens them. The black image itself, which turns out to be Bert in blackface, insinuates a cultural stereotype equating blackness with fear or danger. 
a typically Western mm-hmm. notion of blackness and certainly potent in America in the mid-1960s. End quote. Interesting. Yeah. So the fact that Bert is scary because he's darker mm. with the soot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that scary man in an alley whose face you can't see. Definitely scary. Yeah. But you can't ignore the act of blackface should be apparent enough by now mm-hmm. that like you cannot remove that part of the portrayal of this character. There could be lots of ways that they could have somehow obscured Bert's identity so that they True. didn't recognize him. Right. Yeah. Like shadows are a thing. <laughs> shadows <laughs> exist. Talk to Lady Tremaine. She knows all about that shadow work. She does. Yes. So I think it's just an it's an interesting point. I also read similarly about that scene that that area of London based on the way that they've created the set is supposed to be representative of the east end of London mm. which was populated by more poorer people and people of color. Yeah. And you therefore take that association to Bert and therefore the rest of the chimney sweeps who are all wearing the covered faces, mm-hmm. the black face and how then going back to what you were just talking about of like the Marxist side of things that like their rebellion is not just a classist one, mm. but also one based on race and how these people are not a part of the regular society. Mm. You know, they're, they live on the rooftops. They're separate, possibly even a little bit of like magical. And do we get into like the magical Negro stereotype? Yeah. Mm. Like there's a lot there to unpack if you're going to read this as a representation of other kinds of people, particularly black people. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The thing we come, we keep coming back to again and again is like, to what extent did the filmmakers realize they were doing this? And also Mm -hmm. does it matter? You know, does it matter whether it was an expression of implicit bias or explicit bias? (laughs) Probably does it, right? The fact is that the bias was there. Yep. And it's always at least one. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have one other other tiny smidge of racism. Sure. But I also noticed when we go into the Jolly Holiday segment Mm. and then there's the hunting group chasing the fox yes the fox has an irish accent yes and the hunters are all british i noticed so that like too. The, i heard the accent and i was like ah <laughs> yeah <laughs> i what should is, write this down what is that talking about what is that commenting on i don't know i tried to think about it and like frame it in different ways where like the british and their prejudice and atrocities against Irish people in the past of like, that's the representation of the hunting dogs and the hunters chasing the Fox. But then the, maybe the equivalent of like, cause Bert saves the Fox. Mm-hmm. So maybe the oppression that British men with a Cockney accent have faced <laughs> is put them in an alliance with the Irish or Bert is actually an American and the Americans are like, don't worry, Ireland will save you from Britain. And I really don't know enough about Irish history to figure out any of what this context should be or what it could mean. I honestly have no idea why they made the choice to stick that accent in there when it's so apparent. Yeah, it's a really 
really interesting choice. But I don't know what it means. Because that obviously is a very intentional choice, right? You don't just yeah don't just happen to have someone speaking an Irish accent play that fox when everyone right. else has British accents. Yeah, like every other animal character has a British accent or is an American doing a British accent and like none of them stand out. I can't remember what any of them sound like except maybe the cow because he sings the really deep part in Jolly <laughs> But like they don't stand out and this fox super stands out because we've gotten so used to these accents. Mm-hmm. I don't know why they did it. Hmm. No idea. Yeah. Well, that could relate to the issue of colonialism or potentially anti-colonialism. So obviously England has a long and horrendous history of colonial oppression. And it seems like the fiduciary bank is an agent of that. Yes. Right? When, what are their names? Jane and Michael? (laughs) (laughs) Michael, yes. I have the quote from the song. Okay, great. Like me to read it. Yes. (laughs) So in... Fidelity Fiduciary Bank, the song. They say this when they are trying to convince Michael to invest his money. So Mm -hmm. investing his money will lead to these things. Yes. Quote, and you'll receive the sense of conquest as your affluence expands in the hands of the directors who invest as propriety demands. You see, Michael, you'll be part of railways through Africa, dams across the Nile, fleets of ocean greyhounds, majestic self-amortizing canals, plantations of ripening tea. Yeah. So like, that's a lot of things that you did because you colonized those places and they don't want them there. Right. Y'all. <laughs> yeah. See a stupid bank. Why did you fund these things? <laughs> and so the fact that the kids don't want to invest in that Oh, yeah. Right. Go, Michael. <laughs> right, exactly. And the, and the I didn't whole, even think about that. The whole movie is kind of like, let kids be kids, and they shouldn't be worrying about these things anyway. But you could kind of read it as anti-colonialist, right? If you're saying, like, no, you shouldn't be investing in this. And in fact, the bank that is funding these colonialist projects is the villainous entity in the movie to some extent so yeah so yeah i mean it doesn't seem like disney has a whole lot of problems with colonization just right (laughs) based on other movies based on some of the attractions at disneyland (laughs) but in in this movie that seems to be like a pretty clear statement to me yeah i'll give it to him sure (laughs) little checkbox there yeah yeah i mean again no idea if they really thought that through and also the fact that like at the end of the movie mr banks takes the junior partnership and like continues to work for the bank that he hated and that fired him right is like we're just i mean maybe he's gonna make great change (laughs) at this bank or like ways that they invest or something, but like seems super unlikely. It's not like they made him president. They made him a junior partner. Yeah. So it kind of feels like he's just giving back into the system that he hated and that made him cold hearted in the first place. So, but he'll fly a kite every once in a while. Right. He'll hang out with his children and have a happy home as they, you know, destroy people's homes in other countries yeah no big deal (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
that was all I had for our themes. Yeah, that's all I have too. Though I may have some Everett's extras up my sleeve. Woohoo! Woo! Let's hear them. I wrote this down because I thought it was funny and I noticed it originally when I watched it, but I'm pretty sure Mary Poppins's bless you to the dog Andrew in their little scene where they yeah. chat was ad-libbed, which is funny that, that like is they were funny. recording the dog and he sneezed and they she actually said bless you to the puppy. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like such a Julie Andrews move. Yes, and to stay fully in character and like let that be part of the dog's dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> David Tomlinson, who is the voice of Mr. Banks, he also provided the voice for Mary's talking umbrella and also that of mm. the first mate of Admiral Boom. Um, Sorry, can we go back to the umbrella real quick? Yes, I'd love to. Because the tongue? Did you notice the tongue? <laughs> so weird why did they give the umbrella a tongue why couldn't it just have had a beak that moved I don't, to help it look like it's speaking maybe it's so i don't know it's weird i also it really bothers me that when mary shushes it at the end and she grabs the beak she just like doesn't grab it quite right like it doesn't actually close it mm. And then she lets go and it like falls closed. Huh. I was like, oh, like, can we just, can we just edit that one little scene? Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> also, it doesn't talk until the, the very, very end. end. I know. I feel like it should have been, a, you know, another witty voice that we hear making fun of the household or something throughout. Like, why did they add this random thing at the end? <laughs> I assume it's in the books, but... Yeah, but no, you're right. It did feel sort of tacked on. Like, this should have been a bit throughout. Yeah. Not that I'm advocating for an even longer running time, but... <laughs> <laughs> My last extra is that Julie Andrews also provided the voice in two other parts of the film that are not as apparent. In A Spoonful of Sugar, she provides the whistling harmony for the robin. Oh, wow. Right? She's such a good whistler. That's, yeah, she's a very good whistler. <laughs> and then she's also one of the pearly singers during supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Rachel, you have not said that word once this podcast, and I've said it like six times. Are you sure? And it's making me sad. Are you sure? I, I really don't think it? you have. Well, I've just had plenty of other things to say. <sighs> okay. <laughs> but since I feel pressured, I will say mm -hmm. it. Okay. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Oh, good job. <laughs> uh, do you think people get towards the end of our podcast and just turn it off because they know that things like this are going to happen? Probably. Yep. Probably. <laughs> oh, I did want to say, since I mentioned the pearly singers, we did not talk about the oh, couple. Yes, yes. And that probably should have come up in the gender roles misogyny section. <laughs> Yes, so the lyrics of the song warn that when you say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, exciting things can happen. And <laughs> one of the band members says, for example, yes, one night I said it to me girl, and now me girl's me wife. And then a woman standing next to him hits him on the head with a tambourine. <laughs> and he says, oh, and a lovely thing she is, too. And then the woman looks pleased. 
And so I just want to talk about why we're depicting violent relationships. I thought your first question was going to be, why are people using this word in the bedroom? (laughs) What I assume the insinuation is. Oh, wow. Aaron, my mind did not even go there. Wow. I'm not usually the gutter one. I don't appreciate that, but uh, <laughs> yes, that's Sorry. probably true. Yes, my innocent little mind was just picturing them out to dinner at a restaurant, and this gentleman <laughs> would say that, and you know, and then they were married. But uh, yeah, that's a really interesting insinuation. But yeah, my problem with it, since I didn't interpret it to me anything (laughs) sexual my biggest problem with it was the fact that she hits him over the head because he doesn't compliment her when he's telling the story of how they got married yeah i mean i think it relies on he's exposing the details of their relationship or like all he had to do was say a word and and she married him like she's easy is that in really some way? That's the implication. I think it's a, a joke for adults. All this time, it never occurred to me. And I don't think it's out of place to say that there are jokes like that in this story because there are others, like how when Mary pours out the medicine for Jane and Michael, uh, they yeah. say it's like strawberry and lime or something. Lime cordial. Lime cordial, yeah. And then. Mary takes a sip of hers and she's like, rum punch. Mm." And then she hiccups. (laughs) She hiccups, yes, and then she like hides it away again. Yeah. So they're definitely there. Yeah, they are. Wow. Well, I am just reeling from this revelation. Love, love when I can get that reaction. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. Are we going to sing this song every time? I know what grade I am going to give. I know what grade I am going to give. Ooh, that was nice. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. Okay, so you know what grade you're going to give, and it is... It is an A+. Whoa, (laughs) they loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. They loved it. They loved it so much. I did not read a single bad thing. That was more than just someone thinking it was too silly or something. Like, really no bad reviews. So, yeah, Yeah. right up there with uh, Snow White and Cinderella. I believe are the only other two I've given A-pluses so far. Wow. Stick Mary Poppins up in there. The trifecta. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. (sighs) All right, tell me how modern day people want to feel. Yeah, okay, so here's the thing. I don't think I can be held responsible (laughs) for giving a grade that represents the feelings of people who have watched this in the past and grown up with it and love it. Like, I think I need to be giving a grade from the perspective of a 2021 viewer who has never seen it before. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, the never seen it before hadn't been part of my thought process prior to now but I guess that makes sense and I feel like that's what you've been doing and you're just afraid because people love this film (laughs) 
So you wanted to like really make that clear. That is entirely accurate. I am very nervous because I think (laughs) this is one of the grades that might diverge most from popular sentiment Yeah, about the film. But I just, I don't know. I mean, it is some of my bias because I just genuinely did not enjoy watching it. If I'm 100% honest, I fell asleep at one point, so I had to rewind it and finish watching it. (sighs) Rachel, I think... I think you might be being a little extra biased. It's just but like me. this this is probably the biggest dichotomy between the two of us as well. Yeah. Maybe Sleeping Beauty as well. But right, that right, one right, right, right. Uh, Okay, that okay. one's not as as well loved actively, I guess. Like I yeah. feel like Mary Poppins comes up quickly when people talk about Disney films. I think that's fair. And I think Saving Mr. Banks and Mary Poppins Returns have revived some interest in it or awareness of it at least. So let's go with a B minus. And my justification is primarily around the messaging of family dynamics and women's roles and just the complete uh, absence, if not disparagement, of people of color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It has some up points. The music's good. It's there there are good points. There there are good points. <laughs> she that can't I remember them right now. No, I can't. <laughs> I like the nursery scene. I do like when they're cleaning up in the nursery. That's very entertaining. Cause it's all special effects. All right. B minus it is. Moving on. (laughs) Rachel has spoken. (laughs) I have spoken. Uh, Okay. And I already gave you my recommendation. In fact, I did talked about it at length. So, I mean, it was it was very relevant. It was time around. It was. Yes. So uh, all that's left to say is that we hope you'll join us next time for the Jungle Book. Bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. Yeah, man. (laughs) All right. Uh, That one, just in case anyone forgot. (laughs) In case you couldn't place the movie The Jungle Book, it's the one with that song. In the meantime... Email us to let us know what you think at HelloDeconstructingDisney at gmail.com. Or follow us on Twitter at DeconDisney or rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, TTFN. Ta-ta for now.